Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 1st of February 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, I couldn't help but think that this was the right uh, slide to open the news because um, you've got to act like you've got it. Never mind what the truth is. Never mind that you are fit and healthy. You are to act as if you are sick and diseased. Uh, absolutely. And uh, well, the government advertising only gets better if you're watching television, if anybody is, uh, because then you've got to look into the eyes of, uh, of everybody and decide whether you're going to act like you've got it. So uh, it, <laughs> it is pretty egregious propaganda. But let's uh, look at another source of egregious propaganda, the BBC. Uh, COVID vaccine offered to all care homes in England. So this is the claim of the government that uh, the vaccine has now been shipped out to every care home in the country, except for a few uh, that were dealing with what the government called uh, outbreaks. Um, and those are going to be dealt with uh, imminently. And in fact, the, the relevant minister was saying on the BBC Radio 4 Today programme this morning that if any care home hasn't received their vaccine shipment yet uh, and the opportunity for their uh, for their old people to get vaccinated, then they should contact her directly and she will make sure personally that it gets uh, expedited. So that's all good news. So I'm sure uh, all the over 80s that have been vaccinated in care homes are all doing very, very well. Uh, well, let's just look at the reality of the situation. This is uh, Public Health England figures. Uh, and this is the uh, over, eight, over 80s COVID deaths. These are the deaths of everybody over 80 that has been attributed to COVID-19. Uh, and you can see that uh, that begins on the 28th of October 2020 and ends on the uh, 20th of January 2021. Now, why have I chose, chosen that date range? Uh, well, because if we take the first vaccination, uh, that's uh, pretty much uh, in the middle there. So let's uh, compare uh, the period before uh, the first vaccine was delivered with the period following. Uh, and let's put a seven day rolling average on that. And I think that, David, if I can say welcome to the programme, I think that's pretty clear uh, that the seven day rolling average for vaccine or for COVID deaths uh, declared or claimed by the government uh, is significantly higher uh, post the vaccination delivery than pre the vaccination delivery. Very significantly higher. And and this is one of the warning signals that, that we should be expecting those charged with public health uh, to be looking at very carefully. That's surely a warning sign that there could be something very terribly wrong going on. Um, well, let's discover whether there is something very terribly wrong, Brian. Yes, um, now we've got a, um, a short clip coming up, um, essentially audio from an NHS whistleblower that spoke to us over the last uh, couple of days. Um, we've had to heavily uh, change the voice. This person did not want to be identified. Once you listen through the clip, you will understand why the person would say that. Um, so some of it is quite difficult to, to hear, but uh, we've put a transcript of what's being said on screen. If you're just listening to today's uh, news audio, we're going to encourage you to go to the website once the full news programme is up on the website and you can play the video there and see the, the transcript so that you understand exactly what this person is talking about. Let's, let's hear what the, uh, the NHS whistleblower wanted to tell us. That week after that, you're very susceptible to getting an infection. 
I am not fully aware of exactly what's happened, but I believe there's some interesting statistics come out of Gibraltar as well. Just as a, a general question for you, how are people, other professionals in the NHS responding? Are they beginning to see through this or are they still deceived by it? So, Mike, um, pretty obvious from that report what's happening and the end of course tells the whole story that if NHS professionals dare to speak out warning the public of risks that they're not fully aware of um, they're going to lose their job those NHS people are going to lose their job um, now this was uh, some of the data that we were also this is actually uh, showing um, the suppression um, this is lymphocytes so this is dealing with white blood cells and what you're essentially seeing is this suppression after the vaccine the blue um, the uh, light blue color is uh, simply a placebo given and the other colors relate to varying uh, doses of vaccine but you can see the suppression of the body's immune system and uh, at the very bottom of the screen is part of the reference for that but uh, uh, people can check for themselves. This person took great risk to get this information to us. And this is what was said about the target group of 80 years old and above. Um, average death rate one month before vaccine, 158.6. Average death rate one month after vaccine, sorry, was average death rate one month before vaccine, 158. Average daily death rate one month after vaccine, 214. Average daily death rate after vaccine up to the 21st of January, 287. Increase in average daily rate post-vaccine, 35%. Increase in average death rate post-vaccine to the 25th of January, 2021, 81%. And then uh, there's also an increase in the 60 to 79-year-old age group. And there's part of the uh, data source for that. Which so that was the same data source that I used for my graph at the beginning. So if anybody wants to find the data for that, there's about 20 different uh, uh, actual actual data sheets on in that spreadsheet. It's it's very worthwhile getting right, That's off. really excellent, Mike, because basically we're, we're getting a correlation between the evidence being brought forward now. Uh, this was the comment about Israel. Over 12,400 Israeli residents tested positive for COVID-19 after being vaccinated among them 69 people who had already had the second dose 
which began to be administered early last week, the health ministry uh, reported in Israel. So this amounts to a 6.6% of the 189,000 vaccinated people who took coronavirus tests after being vaccinated. And if we look at some of the detail here, here's the Israeli population, 8,732,921. Active cases, uh, nearly 75,000. Post-vaccine group infection rate, 6.6. Background active infection rate, 0.85%. And the vaccine group had a 776% increased COVID infection compared to the background active infection and there's some source there but there was other material uh, provided so uh, i think a very serious report and the key thing is that we know that the government and the department of health and the mhra are simply not reporting on these dangers to the public um, david the mainstream media is covering this but they're not doing any serious analysis so here's the mail online coronavirus outbreak kills do dozens at care homes 24 elderly residents die in hampshire while second tragedy in midlands leaves nine dead but as far as i can see uh, not necessarily this article specifically but the, in, as a general comment on the mainstream press they're almost doing their best to make sure that there's no correlation made between these deaths and the vaccines well the 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 report the vaccines pre um the vaccine rollout immediately preceded um the the, the covid the covid infections and the covid deaths um, and then they'll report um, some sort of government official saying there's no there's no link here and even when they'll they show graphs to show what's actually happening, they don't engage with, this, with the real story. This is the graph from that same article. Now, what that shows is the COVID-19 deaths in uh, red have gone up, it was around about the 8th of December the rollout started. So they've gone up nearly four times. The COVID-19 deaths in care homes have gone up four times, whereas the deaths for all other causes have not changed at all. That graph is in the same article, but but the 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 journalist and the and the mainstream outlet here in this case the Mail they're at least reporting it, but they're not they're not actually getting to grips with the significance of the fact that the the vaccine was rolled out into the care homes and COVID deaths went up fourfold. What's happening? Um, uh, but the Mail article then goes on to uh, uh, offer a. Quote from the spokesperson for the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Uh, I'm sure they had yeah. a lot to say on this. Well, we are saddened to hear about any deaths which have occurred since receiving COVID-19 vaccination. However, our surveillance does not suggest that the COVID-19 vaccines have contributed to any, any deaths, the spokesperson said. It is not unexpected that some of these people may die, may naturally fall ill due to their age or underlying conditions shortly after being vaccinated without the vaccine playing any role in that. We have robust surveillance systems in place to review all reports of suspected side effects to determine whether there's any possible new risks or, or whether they're coincidental. So that says nothing to see here. We roll the vaccine into the care homes. We have got a fourfold increase in deaths. It's just, it's just coincidence. Um, well, of course, the MHRA has spent this millions of pounds on this new AI system to track these adverse reactions, but they're strangely enough still not prepared to make that data available uh, for anybody to analyse. So we've just got to take the word for it, I suppose. Um, but uh, it is amusing to me, uh, David, and actually not really, but, but it is a bit sad that uh, the narrative seems to be changing. Um, because whenever the, at the beginning of 2020, uh, anybody that was dying, uh, which who had a, a, an underlying health condition, um, that was absolutely a COVID death. Uh, but anybody who's dying following vaccination, uh, who had an underlying health condition, that was the underlying health condition and not the vaccine. So which way is it? They've got to decide which way they want to. Uh, which way they want to have that argument because well, they can't have it both ways as far as I can see. The fact they're trying to have it both ways, Mike, is because essentially they are telling lies. They are distorting the figures. They're spinning the figures. And the moment they're into telling lies, they can't go with a, a uniform direction of common sense. 
They've got to keep weaving around because they are lying. This is the way it works. Uh, now, David, uh, you have a little bit of video here for us from the United States. Just introduce this for us. Yeah, so this is a, 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 a healthcare worker in the United States, um, a certified nursing assistant. So relatively junior, but very much hands-on, having a very close working relationship and spending a lot of times a lot of time with the patients and uh, in, a, in a long and often very emotional uh, video testimony uh, this gentleman uh, explains what he's seeing I know my patients I know when they are happy I know when they are sad I know when they are frustrated I know when they are feeling good I know these people, I'm around them for eight hours, and many people who are CNAs can testify of the same thing. We know the people that we care for. So, two weeks after these people received the vaccine, particularly the, the, the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, Bi vaccine, two weeks after they received the vaccine, or, or three weeks later, we, I am seeing this pattern this pattern of, of not just side effects to the point where we had people who were once walking who are no longer walking. People who were once talking who could no longer talk. Hmm? People who were once able to think could no longer think properly. Delirium, confused. This is what I'm saying, friends. Our residents are dying. Our residents are dying after they have taken this vaccine. And what troubles me, or troubles me, this is not even being spoken about. What bothers my heart is that it's almost like, S -s -s don't talk about this. Just keep. And and this this gentleman was uh, speaking um, from a, a from his experience in a care home, which during the entire COVID crisis from um, last March up until the point the vaccine was introduced, had had five cases and no deaths in his care home. Um, and uh, since the vaccine has been introduced, people are dying. And he's, he's clearly, he was very upset at points during the video. Um, and uh, he's essentially unable to remain silent because of um, moral, considerations as to what that means as to it, it would mean essentially abandoning the people he's meant to be caring for unless he raises the alarm yes okay well look uh, let's run through a few more headlines here so this is uh this is from the uh the orange county register healthcare worker dies after second dose of covid uh, vaccine uh, this is the International Business Times. Healthcare worker dies after receiving coronavirus vaccine. Now, Family still encourages the, inoculation. Are these the same case? Right. This is the same case. So the first one's from a local paper. Healthcare worker dies, and uh, the the message from the widow is uh, that we need to know the cause. We need to we need to learn more information. But when the International Business Times got got a hold of it, uh, their key points were. This healthcare worker, Mr. Zook, died after receiving the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, doctors um, uh, placed the 60-year-old in a uh, medically induced coma two days after receiving the shot, uh, and he died four days after. And the really striking bit comes in the International Business Times report. Um, uh, Rochelle Zook, um, who shared the tragic story with the Orange County Register, that's the first report we saw, believes more research needs to be done in cases of severe or fatal reaction to the vaccine. However, she's, she says she does not blame any pharmaceutical company and continues to encourage inocul inoculation. Quote, he, that is a deceased man who's just been killed by a severe reaction, he believed in vaccines. I'm sure he would take that vaccine again and would want the public to take Whoa. it. The message is, be safe, take the vaccine. This is, this is incredible. How does someone who's just lost a loved one, how are they so controlled in their thinking? It's to, it's to conclude that the, the, the deceased would, would repeat the course of action that led to their death out of um, loyalty to the cause. It's almost cult. 
And, uh, David, I, I think it's more complex than that because what, what you, you've also got here is cognitive dissonance in that uh, lady's head. She, she doesn't know what, uh, what the real situation is. So she's got the trauma of a loss and she's got all of the propaganda pumped in. So yeah. cognitive dissonance, we're, we're more and more we're talking um, the, the language of psychology because the attack on the population in UK and the USA Europe as a whole is a psychological attack. That's why we're now seeing people who are saying things which don't appear to make sense. But of course, if we realize that they're, they're under fear, tension, stress, anxiety, cognitive dissonance, it does make sense. Uh, and David, the mail again. Uh, Coronation Street actress Maureen Lippmann's partner of 13 years, Gil Castro, dies after a short COVID-related illness aged 84. Yeah, another case where uh, what happened was someone who was very poorly with, with multiple health challenges and, and serious health conditions was given the COVID-19 uh, vaccine and then very quickly after that came down with COVID-19. This, this wasn't the cause of death, but, but weakened the person enormously and they passed away shortly thereafter. So just another anecdotal example, this time from someone uh, in the, uh, uh, the the husband of of someone in 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 acting and celebrity, uh, so it makes the papers. Another anecdotal example of what we're seeing here, of what you reported earlier, that the COVID vaccine is seems to be causing problems, not not solving them when it's administered to people who are elderly and infirm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, David, I just wanted to reinforce the little section on Pemberley House on Friday when uh, uh, Mike covered it on the news. I, I tweeted out uh, what was actually being reported. So the article used was the Gazette and it said coronavirus outbreak, 22 deaths at Pemberley House care home. Uh, but over the weekend, I had this sent in from the Romsey advertiser, Pemberley House care home deaths not related to the vaccine. Uh, so a big uh, push that definitely not related to the vaccine. And uh, this is where we've, we've got some reinforcing of our news uh, segments today, because uh, what did I pick up from the article? Well, exactly as you uh, have already shown is we've got the MHRA saying this. But of course, it isn't the organisation saying it. I've pinned this on to June Rain, the chief executive. Uh, there it is. We're saddened to hear about any deaths which have occurred since receiving COVID-19 vaccination. However, our surveillance does not suggest. So there's not an investigation to find out how all these elderly people uh, died. Um, she's using quasi-military language to say, well, really, we don't, we don't care a stuff is what's going on here. Uh, it's not expected that some of these not unexpected. sorry not unexpected that some of these people may naturally fall ill due to their age or underlying conditions shortly after being vaccinated without the vaccination playing any role. But she's got no evidence. And what she is actually saying to the British public is I don't care whether these elderly people die because we're just not going to bother to investigate it. They're, they're not worth it. We have robust surveillance systems in place to rapidly review all reports of suspected side effects to determine whether these are possible new risks or coincidental. But if you don't follow through with an investigation, Mike, this is an irrelevant, uh, vacuous statement. And uh, the article also had this statement, which I've pinned on this lady as well. It said government advice states that one cannot catch COVID-19 from the vaccine, but it is possible to have caught COVID-19 and not realise you have the symptoms until after your vaccination appointment, adding that it may take a week or two after the first dose to build up protection. Now, do you think that week or two might be linked to the suppression of your immune system that it, the whistleblowers just warned us about? It, it very well could be, uh, but it's all very, it's all based on coincidence. You just by coincidence happen to have lived through the pandemic uh, in inverted commas since March 2020. But as soon as you get that jab in your arm, uh, suddenly you've got it. Yeah. So something's going on, either it's the vaccine uh, directly or it is, as our whistleblower has said, the suppression of the immune system as a result of the vaccine. Uh, but the vaccine seems to be the key driver in either case. Yeah. Um, so I just remind people that MHRA uh, site has got this coronavirus yellow card reporting access. 
so if you have concerns about what's going on, this is where you ought to go in your millions in order to post your concerns about what's happening. Um, right. Well, let's have a look at a bit of news from Spain. Uh, well, it's in Spanish, so let's uh, translate it quickly. Uh, and thank you very much to the person that sent me th this through. Um, so the headline saying in 2020, 17,197 fewer people died in Spain than in 2019 and 26,608 fewer than in 2018. Uh, and this is coming from official Spanish government statistics. There's a link in the article there, which you can just about see on screen uh, to the PDF file that has the statistics in it. Uh, and uh, it's really quite stark. So there we go. Uh, Spain certainly didn't have a pandemic and yet we were getting all the headlines throughout the year of uh, uh, the, the terrible situation in that particular country. Uh, now, let's move on to this quickly. Uh, we mentioned this on Friday, the Telegraph uh, shouting that no jab, no job policy should be the law. Well, can it be the law? And uh, this is the question. Of course, it can't be the law. Uh, there are a number of reasons why. First of all, because the British government uh, is signed up to the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. Uh, and that, of course, is uh, managed by the European Court of Human Rights, which in turn is uh, part of the uh, Council of Europe. Um, now, they have uh, released last week uh, a document discussing COVID-19 vaccines, ethical, legal and practical considerations. Uh, and they say in that document, with respect to ensuring high vaccine uptake, uh, people need or governments need to make sure that citizens are informed that the vaccination is not mandatory uh, and that no one is politically, socially or otherwise pressured to get themselves vaccinated if they do not wish to do so themselves. It goes on to say that uh, with respect to ensuring high vaccine uptake, governments and so on are expected to ensure that no one is discriminated against for not having been vaccinated due to possible health risks or not wanting to be vaccinated. Uh, and it also says that uh, governments should distribute transparent information on the, the safety and possible side effects of vaccines, working with and regulating social media platforms to prevent the spread of misinformation. Now, I do have a bit of a problem with this one. Uh, and that is because uh, it is general. Uh, they're saying that they've got to tr uh, provide transparent information on the sa safety and possible side effects of vaccines. I think in this particular drive, uh, there has to be some transparent information given on the safety and possible side effects of the vaccines that are being pushed on people at this particular moment in time in particular, as well as the broader general thing. Uh, but the unfortunate aspect of this is that it's also calling for a regulation of social media platforms to prevent the spread of misinformation. Uh, and that's a problem because, uh, of course, most of the misinformation, as far as I can see at this point in time, is coming from governments themselves. But David, this call for uh, uh, the law to be imposed uh, on this idea of no jab, no job, uh, this is extremely dangerous. The, I don't like human rights legislation or human rights, the, the human rights approach as such. But nonetheless, both the United Nations, uh, the, uh, the Council of Europe and in fact, the British government's own training material on vaccines say the same things. This is not mandatory. It cannot be made mandatory. Full disclosure and, and uh, you know, proper consent needs to be uh, in place. Yes, and we have to be strong on this and we have to keep repeating this because so often in the past, the law has been transformed from something that protects us to something that oppresses us. Uh, and we don't want that to be extended into the realm of bodily autonomy. For sure. OK, well, a big thank you to one of our viewers from Cornwall who pointed me in the direction of this document. Um, it's uh, from the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights. It was published in the, on the 6th of May, 2020. So very early on in the COVID uh, situation, it's come out of Oxford University Faculty of Law, and it's covering COVID, essentially COVID policy worldwide. There is a particular section by Dr. Elizabeth Stubbins Bates, who's uh, talking about the situation in the United Kingdom. Uh, but what our viewer pointed out was this section here. Um, let's have a look at what it's talking about. It's talking about following the NICE rapid guideline. If we blow that up on screen, following the NICE rapid guideline, there were individual cases of GP surgeries writing to elderly patients uh, 
and those with underlying health conditions including learning disabilities either to request or inform them of the imposition of do not attempt uh, resuscitation orders so this uh, particular person who said this said they were so shocked to see what had been going on that there was the targeting of people with learning disabilities with regard to do not resuscitate and i get into another section here um, we'll bring this up on screen as well uh, nice applied a numerical clinical frailty scale usually used for patients with dementia suggesting that those requiring personal care support and mobility with a frailty score of five or more would be would be perhaps ineligible for critical care the nice guideline was amended following a letter before action from solicitors representing people with autism and learning disabilities so that the scale is not to be used in younger people people with stable long-term disabilities for example cerebral palsy learning disabilities or autism who ought who should receive an individual assessment so this was a blanket do not resuscitate pushed out on people with learning disabilities and other immensely vulnerable people where have we seen this sort of policy before now this may shock you but if you don't know you need to know about this uh, have a look for the t4 program that's Tiagrasa strap 4 this was uh, a program in 1933 where the uh, the nazis started to kill off a mass killing off of the mentally ill and the disabled and I have to say on the UK column news today uh, in my mind there is no difference with what we have seen under the surface around uh, this do not resuscitate withdrawing of uh, medical care to old and vulnerable people this has its origins in the same Nazi policy David uh, well I was just going to say to David look, just very very briefly uh, you know when you when you look at, at comments on social media and so on when you when you try to uh, draw parallels between what's going on in the present day with what happened in the 1930s Germany uh, anytime the word Nazi comes up the the response from certain people is well if you're if you're you know falling back on that old trope uh, you've basically lost your argument but it's pretty hard to, to to accept that position at this point yeah history doesn't repeat itself but sometimes it rhymes um, it, it people ordinary people and we'll see this later in the show are seeing the parallels uh, because the parallels are real Let, let's come back to that later on folks yes okay okay well um, Excellent news. Uh, we've got another vaccine on its way. Uh, Valneva uh, has just done a deal with the government for another 40 million doses of their inactivated adjuvanted, adjuvanted uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Now, of course, this is one of the five, but uh, nonetheless, uh, they've done another deal. This takes the total number of Valneva uh, vaccines to 100 million, and they're going to be manufactured in Scotland, David. So it's providing Scotland with 100 jobs. So that's really good news. Uh, it means the UK is now secured early access to over 400 million doses of vaccines between for 2021 and 2022. So with uh, 65 million people in the country, then why do we need uh, 400 million doses? Uh, many people may be asking, well, of course, it's because of this, uh, because we are not just uh, immunizing, to use that word, uh, uh, people in the UK, but globally as well. So the government is committed, they say, to supporting equitable access to vaccines worldwide. The UK is the largest donor to COVAX, uh, and uh, this is the global mechanism to help developing countries across uh, access a coronavirus vaccine. So that's why we're buying quite so many. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, uh, we've got another short um, interview clip uh, with a former nurse uh, called Debbie Evans. Uh, she was talking to me over the weekend about the dangers of swabs. And, uh, well, I really paid attention to what she was uh, saying. Let's let's hear what she said and what her precise warning Sorry, was. Sorry, but these swabs are with respect up the nose swabs well, these, with respect the, to uh, testing? Uh, these are to do with the throat, but particularly the nasal swabs in relation to COVID-19. You were warning quite some time ago that uh, there were concerns around the use of these deep um, nasal swabs for the COVID tests. For people who've got 
no medical experience at all. Tell us a bit about what's actually going on and why you've got those concerns. Well, I've had, as you know, Brian, I've had the concerns right from the get-go, really. Um, I'm a trained um, state-registered nurse. I trained back in the old days in the 70s, um, and I specialised in ear, nose and throat, both on a, a clinical um, setting and within a, a theatre setting as well. So I know what nasopharyngeal swabs are, and I know how potentially dangerous they can be. And even as an ENT-trained nurse, I would not feel comfortable without specific training um, supervised by uh, an ENT surgeon or an ENT consultant. I wouldn't feel safe in performing a nasopharyngeal swab. And, and the reason is, is because it's very invasive. And I don't know why we're using six-inch six swabs that go right at the back of the throat and right inside the nasal cavity, um, especially in healthy people when we don't need to. And I think what's important to, to note about the anatomy and the physiology of, of the head is that each nose is different, as we know, by looking at people. And noses have different ridges and bumps inside them. So no nobody is the same you know everyone is unique and at the top of your palate is something called the cribriform plate it's very very delicate it's a midline bone and it's really important both to the skull and what well, other people know the skull as the cranium and the nose and and what it does is it's it's a bit like um, a mesh it's not like a long bone like you think, you know, the femur would be. It's like a mesh bone. So the olfactory nerves pass right through this. It's really delicate, really, really fragile. And if you damage it, it can be extremely serious because it's really, I guess, putting it in layman's terms, it's the gateway to the brain. Um, it's, it's, it's the partition that kind of closes your brain off to the rest of, of your head. So it's, it's really, really delicate. And these swabs are very long. And I've spoken to people that have had swabs stuck down the back of their throats. And then the same swab has been stuck up their noses and turned around, um, twisted and, and held there for 15 seconds. Now, what's, what I'm struggling with is why we need to use these invasive tests, because there are actually papers that have been published to say that saliva is more sensitive for SARS-CoV-2 in COVID-19 patients than nasopharyngeal swabs. And that was a paper that was published back in April 2020 by Anna Wiley et al. So my question is, is why are we needing to use these swabs and what could be on the swabs? What are we introducing into the body when we don't actually need to? So very clear uh, piece there from Debbie Evans. And of course, two points, the dangers of the swabs, of taking the swab with these long probes up your nose, dangerous. And then she's pointing out we could do this very simply by taking a sample of, of saliva and, and do a better job. So let me just reinforce what she said because uh, there's, there is material available. This is the JAMA network reporting the case of a 40-year-old woman. I'll come on to that in a minute. But in this article, there's this diagram, the little yellow arrows you can see in each of the three images is pointing at the area that Debbie is talking about. And certainly with the, um, the section on the right of your screen, you can see uh, why she is talking about the immense danger of putting something up so close to your brain. Now, this is the report from JAMA Network. It said that a woman in her 40s presented with unilateral rhinorrhea, that's a discharge from the nose, metallic taste, headache, neck, neck stiffness, and photophobia. The patient had recently completed nasal COVID-19 testing uh, for an elective hernia repair. Shortly after, she developed unilateral rhinorrheal, headache, and vomiting. The patient's medical history was notable for idiopathic intracranial hypertension and removal of nasal polyps, small growths, over 20 years before presentation. And it went on to say that physical examination revealed clear rhinorrhea from the right side of a nose, flexible nasopharyngoscopy, 
That's a difficult word. I'm sorry I made a mess of that one. Revealed a mass in the right anterior middle meters, but did not identify the source of the fluid. To our knowledge, this is the first report of an atrogenic CSF, celebrospinal fluid leak, after a nasal swab for COVID-19. And it then went on to say capacity for COVID-19 testing is increasing in the US with plans to ramp up to as many as 6 million tests per day by the end of 2020. Although it's now routine in the US to rule out COVID-19 prior to elective surgeries for many hospital admissions and for sim symptomatic individuals, additional testing may help contain the spread of COVID-19. As the number of daily COVID-19 nasal and nasopharyngeal swab specimen collection procedures increases, a greater burden is placed on the healthcare system to, quote, properly train clinicians and even the general public to safely perform nasal and nasopharyngeal swab testing. And it ends with this, high quality instruction on how to properly obtain an adequate nasopharyngeal specimen for testing is available. However, Adverse events may still occur owing to complex and delicate anatomy. Such complications have not been well described in the existing literature. So many people having something pushed up their nose with immense danger, particularly if you have an underlying medical condition affecting that area of your face, your nose, that you're completely unaware of. Um, that says there such complications have not been well described in the existing literature, uh, but they're very well described, or at least there's an effort to describe in a particular way in the various fact-checking uh, uh, organisations and publications, uh, because this issue has been very much downplayed by those. Um, and uh, But again, this, there is no basis for the downplaying by the fact-checkers. Uh, once again, the scientific literature shows that there's, this is a much more complex situation than they imply, yeah. uh, and it's, the questions still need to be asked and answered. Yes, and, and it takes a, takes a retired nurse to, to come out and start talking about the details of the dangers here. Um, well, this is a, an email that came into the UK column. I know the text is very small. I'm going to encourage people, uh, once the news is available on the UK column website, to get back on the, the video uh, news stream and freeze this so you can read the detail. Uh, but this was sent in to us from a very, very capable and experienced university professor who had spent time in hospital. And he was describing what he saw and he experienced during his, uh, his time in, the, in an NHS hospital. I've just captured the last bit. This is the last thing he says at the end of his email. In short, I'm afraid people are being killed. Just the list of people dying from all sorts of illnesses is increasing. It's truly frightening. I can tell you my fellow patients got afraid and all anyone wanted was to get home even without being cured. Um, now, we're getting a lot of uh, communication from professionals, whether they're psychologists or people in the NHS. We're now university professors who've suffered in, in a hospital and the, the total email is an eye-opener. Um, I, th I think it's beholden on all of us to get this information around. Now, changing the subject a little bit um, before we uh, uh, talk about support for the UK column. Uh, this was an email that came in. Uh, an ex-military veteran is reporting that military veterans up to the age of 50 have been asked if they would re-engage. We understand the response has been rather unenthusiastic, uh, but we're very keen for anyone else who can tell us more about this and why the MOD is trying to recruit veterans. Okay, now if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, we'd be very keen for you to join us there. It'd be very much appreciated and much needed. Uh, but also, if you would be willing to share our material from the various platforms, uh, that would be great as well. Let's uh, quickly move on uh, to this. The Mail, the Daily Mail is finally caught up uh, because we've been talking about this for several weeks. But the headline in the Mail yesterday was flu is almost wiped out and at lowest levels in 130 years as seasonal virus plummets 95%. Uh, now, Brian, you wanted to highlight this particular comment at the bottom of this. Uh, well, it's always good, as many people tell us, to go to the actual comments on the, on the 
websites of the of the uh, press and the media to see what the public is saying and, and this was the first one I came to and so we've got Harry saying was this before they were told to report re report all flu-like symptoms as COVID and stop publishing figures on the common winter virus or after just because you stop reporting figures doesn't make it go away. Uh, well, that, that's a fairly good uh, sentiment, but uh, apparently not reporting does make it go away. Here's the uh, uh, Public Health England graph uh, and flu pretty much gone. Uh, if we compare that to, this is a 2020-2021 graph. If we compare that to the year before, uh, we see uh, quite a different picture. Uh, and the year before that, that's 2017-2018, a very much different picture. Uh, but let's just remind ourselves and bring everybody up to date with the latest graph from the World Health Organization. Because, of course, if it was really about the way things were being reported, then uh, it would, we might say in the UK, uh, everything's being reported as COVID and therefore flu is not being reported properly. Uh, but let's look at the global picture. Not everybody's in the same type of lockdown as, as the UK. Here's the latest graph from the World Health Organization. Uh, and we can see quite clearly that no flu anywhere on this planet has been reported since week 16 of 2020. Now, another coincidence, it's amazing how many coincidences we have here, but here's another coincidence, because lockdown in UK began in week 13. Lockdown in other countries began around uh, that time, week 13 of 2020. Uh, and that's when we started seeing the spike in claimed cases of COVID-19. And at the same time, we see a complete collapse to nothing in the global circulation of influenza viruses. David, uh, you know, it's it was summer uh, for most of those weeks in the Northern Hemisphere, but we had a whole half of the world where it was winter. Uh, maybe you've got an explanation for, for this. Oh, yes, 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 yes. The explanation is, right, because we're all wearing masks, right, we're not transmitting the flu virus. And because we're all not wearing masks, we're all transmitting the COVID virus. Those two things have to be held in the head simultaneously uh, so that you cannot see the conflict. Yes, right, okay. And hand washing, of course, they're saying that it's hand washing as well and social distancing. In fact, all the things that psychologists in the spy B unit of the government SAGE, their scientific team for COVID measures, all of the psychology has completely got rid of flu. This is just, this is just amazing, Mike. Yeah, totally amazing. Just totally amazing. amazing. Um, David, uh, in the Highlands, uh, there was a bit of an, well, you couldn't call it an altercation, a discussion between the police and a shopkeeper over lockdown. Just introduce this for us. Well, it just shows you that uh, some nice little old ladies who run shops in the Highlands are not being some, I'm not giving in to double think. They're very clear thinking, and they are seeing these events with um, a, 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 a clarity and, a, and, an, and an accuracy that the police find very uncomfortable. Yes, but surely you can see what I'm trying. The point I'm trying to make. I've told you. I've told you, Cody and yourself earlier. I'm in here to try and earn a living and use my liquor license to do so. And I've come in here to do lots of paperwork and to do lots of casework on an insurance company that's refusing to pay me. So as, as a person that still has all the overheads for their business and expected to pay full rent, I'm actually at 68, I'm under enough pressure Absolutely. without being bullied Absolutely. here. I understand. You don't. You won't understand, respectfully, you won't understand till the knock comes to your door and your wages stop. That's when you'll understand. There's Nanny Collar Sturgeon to pay your wages, by the way. There's Nanny Collar Sturgeon to pay your guys' wages. It's her. And I really feel intimidated here. I've mm. got Me too. many, like <clears throat> three police officers in here. Four. Which is four. Yeah, the, the other one, one is outside, I think. All right. And it's just so over the top. What is it you want to do? Brandbeat me and frighten me? Absolutely not. That's exactly what they want to do. Yeah. Do you want me in tears on the counter? I've been here for 16 years and worked like a navvy. 
to make my business survive. I'm asking you, you three human beings, where is your heart? Where is your common sense? Where is your dignity? Unfortunately, it's not up to ourselves to decide what, what gets enforced. You know what? The SS said the same yes, thing, guys. <laughs> and I'm you going to tell behind, you... It's my job, but that doesn't count. See, in Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trials, when they say, I was only following orders, it wasn't taken for an excuse. It's not quite the same, is it? It is getting the It is quite the same, guys. It is the same. It is the same. It is the same. Thank you. Yes, and we're back to Nuremberg, and wasn't she magnificent? She looked at the police and she said, you won't understand till the knock comes at your door. Oh, that was spot on. Uh, David, she was spot on, and, and I, I've said this before, I'll say it again, whenever I see the police, what's in my head is the, the ignorance of these people building this fascist state, which will capture their children the children of police men and women will and the grandchildren will be captured in the police state they're building and she hit the nail on the head when you say you're just following orders um it's not good enough so uh, well done i see there's a few people in the chat box saying we should be supporting the shop by ordering things so maybe david you might like to give us some detail i saw some particularly fine tar excuse me tartan on the right hand side of that image i'll i'll see what we can find out okay well uh, just come back to another uk column uh, email i'm doing the same thing is the bulk of it is on screen you'll have to you have to look at the video freeze the screen but it's basically a parent saying yep we're also teaching our children how to counter bbc news round propaganda and the statement was we too use bbc news round as a home teaching tool to quote highlight the lies and propaganda and utter trash they that's the bbc uh, demand we digest so i'm going to say well done to another parent there calling out this nonsense uh, now quite a bit in the media over the last couple of days about uh, alleged uh, racism on twitter and so on uh, this is sky sports uh, marcus rashford uh, Man United striker receives racist abuse following draw with Arsenal and apparently he's one of a few uh, and so on. So here is uh, a tweet that he pushed out. Humanity and social media at its worst. Yes, I'm a black man and I live every day. Proud that I am. No one or no one comment is going to make me feel any different. So sorry if you're looking for a strong reaction. You're simply not going to get it here and so on. Uh, the, uh, the Manchester police uh, pushed out a statement uh, regarding online hate comments uh, and uh, of course the the narrative that was being pushed in the BBC this morning is that we've got to make everybody in social media identify themselves uh, so that they can be uh, taken to task uh, legally uh, for pushing hateful statements. I just spotted the language in that uh, if we had uh, our very own Alex Thompson here we might get a response to this but I find it interesting the police would say we will continue to take all reports of this nature incredibly seriously yes that sounds like um, that sounds like a young lady who's gone through media school to me but yep. uh, okay well uh, what's this all about well of course uh, it's all about uh, online harms uh, now, last week, the Cybersecurity Summit was taking place uh, and the wonderful Julian Knight MP, who's the chairman of the Dep uh, uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, was speaking. Uh, and uh, again, he's pushing the idea that criminal sanctions need to be brought against social media companies in what he called cases of grave corporate inaction and poor process in dealing with the types of comments uh, that are being uh, pushed in the or at least talked about in the mainstream press but David uh, this looks quite similar to me to the uh, media furore that was uh, in the run-up to the Leveson inquiry where uh, the British government was attempting to uh, get editorial control of the press well they succeeded in getting editorial control of the press at the end of the day not through the Leveson uh, inquiry but because uh, of various other uh, reliances on government advertising money and so on uh, but that seems to be the direction of travel for social media now, if we allow it to go that way. Yes, and um, I would have to say that uh, the ability of people to 
stick up for one another on social media and actually police it to some extent themselves is very substantial. And we should be taking on those who want to paint people as a different colour, as somehow subhuman. We should be taking them on. I'll, I'll have the other side of that argument any day, right? And I don't want them in jail. Um, they're wrong. And I think we should argue the case. And I think uh, bringing the state uh, and, its, and its bully boys and its uh, handcuffs in, into uh, public discourse will do nothing to uh, in, improve um, uh, uh, relations between different parts of our, of our community. And it will do much to harm it just as the BLM protests so heavily pushed by both football, football authorities and the mainstream media have done nothing but harm race relations, which was, after all, the uh, intention of the people who founded the movement. Indeed. This is not good news. I was going to say with a hint of sarcasm, uh, good news, because here's a solution. How can we change society? Well, uh, the BBC says that, uh, well, the headline says it all, push to ensure pupils are politically literate. So the BBC is now going to be involved in helping our young people to be politically literate. And uh, this is part of the article. Um, the opening paragraph was this. There's a fire inside of our generation that is so willing to change everything and it's motivating us to become more politically active than any other teenage group this past century, says Lysander Hughes, uh, an 18-year-old from East London who has, quote, been taking political literacy lessons at school. So you get the propaganda in there to completely take over the minds of the children and then you let them loose to change the country into the desired mould of the BBC. It's pretty obvious what's going on in the UK, I think. OK, David, uh, here's the BBC again. What's been going on with the uh, child sexual abuse inquiry in Scotland? Uh, well, the BBC are in court uh, fighting, would you believe, for freedom to report uh, the news. Uh, they're fighting against uh, the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry and specifically against Lady Smith, who chairs the inquiry. A remarkable situation. Um, Lady Smith, the chairwoman of the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry, faced an employment tribunal in 2019. And Lady Smith, uh, acting as a judge, issued orders which stopped the detail of that action being reported. So she was literally checking her own homework here. Uh, she was silencing the BBC and preventing them from, from in, informing the Scottish public about what was actually happening inside the child abuse inquiry. This was akin to what in England would be called a super injunction because the BBC weren't even allowed to talk about the presence of the injunction. They weren't even allowed to talk about, well, anything really. Um, Kenneth uh, McBrady QC, acting for the broadcaster, uh, told the court the purpose of the original restriction was not merely to prohibit disclosure or publication of the documents, it was to prohibit disclosure or publication of the very existence of the proceedings. It is in effect equivalent of what in England would have been described as a super injunction. This is what it amounts to because it prohibits even disclosure. Now, what was all this about? Well, actually, this is about a case that we reported on back in 20, um, 2019. Um, the, the gentleman concerned is John Halley, an advocate, part-time sheriff, and uh, he was a senior um, in the child abuse inquiry. He was taken very unwell, uh, with very serious life-threatening illness, um, and while he was uh, re recru recuperating from this, um, he was doing research and uh, writing a report based on the trafficking of children in Scotland, where he'd been asked to write this, information had come to him. Um, and we'll put this quickly up on the screen, just again, you can go back and freeze this. This is part of his statement, which is still available on Twitter. Um, so this was to do with um, connections to the Scottish legal establishment in Edinburgh and the trafficking of children. And this report was put through to the child abuse inquiry to Lady Smith, and she, ref she considered that this was something he should not have been doing, and hence he was dismissed on medical grounds, and that, that uh, gave rise to the, um, the, the wrongful dismissal claim. Um, 
and uh, Mr. Halley concludes, I will not permit serious allegations detailed in my note of past child exploitation and failures to report suspicions of child exploitation by lawyers, judges, public figures and others to be ignored. So that's why he was in dispute with the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry, and that, one would assume, is why the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry tried to um, silence the BBC on the whole matter. Um, it's all pretty normal around uh, child abuse issue, issues, David, as we've seen over a great many years. The moment uh, there appears to be an attempt to get the truth about the massive uh, abuse of children in UK and government and local authority involvement in that abuse, uh, the whitewash and the cover-up starts. And of course, COVID's been very useful for getting rid of the final uh, remnants of um, uh, the child abuse inquiry in, uh, in England to just simply disappear. Uh, well, back on the BBC and uh, couldn't resist uh, focusing people's attention on this important little thing on the BBC front page earlier today. Can you see it? Well, possibly not, but I suddenly noticed an interesting little button down here, which we should be able to highlight, which said, change your nation. And I thought, my goodness, um, I'm going to press a button and the whole nation is going to be changed. Uh, well, this is what comes up. Uh, you can select which nation you want the reporting for, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, or UK. Um, I think this is a little bit of... Um, neuro-linguistics going on here by the, the uh, BBC because of course the subliminal message is we need change in the nation and then what are you doing you're actually pushing the breakdown of the nation states in front of people's eyes so that's what I think the BBC is doing and uh, there's there's more and more evidence of the BBC's use the use of applied psychology. Um, now on Friday we were talking about uh, the Davos uh, conference that was taking place last week uh, and we played a little bit of their uh, promotional video for that and they were very concerned that everybody would be seeing the Great Reset uh, as some kind of con global conspiracy. Uh, they certainly didn't want anybody to view it as that. Um, but of course later on uh, in that little video clip after the section that we showed you, uh, they were talking about what their uh, global, what the global elites plan for our futures actually was. And the key phrase that was being used uh, was this one, stakeholder capitalism, uh, because Klaus Schwab uh, has got a, a follow-up book to The Great Reset out. It's called Stakeholder Capitalism. Uh, it's all about a global economy that works for progress people and the planet. So we should all feel excellent about that. Uh, and uh, well, this is the little graphic that goes with it. So uh, businesses now aren't just worried about shareholders, they're worried about st uh, lenders, customers, suppliers, employees, state and society and economy. Uh, and David, I'm very going to be very interested to hear what you think this is in a second. But I just uh, wanted to put a couple of definitions of stakeholder capitalism uh, on screen so that everybody understands where it is we're going. Um, so this is uh, Klaus Schwab's definition of stakeholder capitalism. He says, stakeholder capitalism is a form of capitalism in which companies seek long-term value creation by taking into account the needs of all their stakeholders and society at large. So shareholder value is no longer something that a corporation goes after. It's now stakeholder value, um, and they've got to take into account the needs of all their stakeholders. But who are the stakeholders is the question. And but the suggestion that society at large is taken into account, well, that should make people feel uh, quite comfortable, shouldn't it? Uh, well, let's look at somebody else's definition, uh, because one of the key stakeholders in all this, of course, is Bill Gates. Uh, so let's, let's look at the Bill and Melinda Gates definition. Uh, and they were talking about on their website, a global vaccine action plan. Uh, and that would enable greater coordination across all stakeholder groups. And you will note that the general public are not part of this. Um, so national governments are stakeholders, multilateral organizations, so that's the United Nations, the World Health Organization, these types of organizations, they're uh, stakeholders. Uh, civil society, that's non-governmental organizations like Open Society Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, uh, they are definitely stakeholders. The private sector are stakeholders and philanthropic organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are uh, stakeholders but the rest of us aren't stakeholders, David. Uh, so very briefly, I'm wondering what you think this is. 
uh, if you could put a word on, on what this ideology is, but it's certainly where I sort of uh, would draw parallels is with this idea of participatory democracy that's being pushed over the, that has been pushed at us over the last decade or so, uh, where we have a form of participation which does not include the general public and only includes the stakeholders that Bill Gates has mentioned in this little definition. Well, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. The, the very close analogy to this is the economic policy of Nazi Germany. Um, if you wanted to keep your business, you could keep your business. You could thrive. But you had to do as the government directed. Um, you had to pay a lot of people, stakeholders you might call them, um, to get you through the government bureaucracy, which otherwise would strangle you. You needed to pay special lawyers who did nothing but help you through the government bureaucracy, otherwise it would strangle you. And if you decided that you didn't want to use your factory or your office or your organisation for the, the use that the state had identified as being necessary, then it would be kind of taken away from you and you might be allowed to kind of hang around and maybe sweep the floor, but you wouldn't have any control anymore. This is the economics of Nazism, I'm afraid. And we've used the word again, again in the uh, news today. Uh, I think we're on the stops for time. We're going to cover some of the remaining material that we've got in extra, extra time, yeah. I hope. Um, uh, but we've got a, a graphic uh, which you were keen for us to end on, David. Well, I thought this was quite funny. This is the Pfizer executives. Um, and the, 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 it's, it's a scene from uh, Dr. Evil and his, and his evil um, henchmen having a, having a good laugh. Uh, and the statement says, and when people start dying from the vaccine, we will blame the virus and use that to sell more vaccines. Yeah. Yes, that's it at all. And we will end with uh, another one. Uh, thank you very much to the person who put this on the UK column forums, uh, because uh, here we've got uh, the television presenter talking to camera, pointing at the big wave coming towards them, which says COVID on it and not seeing the massively bigger wave that's just behind it, uh, which says poverty. Yeah. OK, uh, David, thank you very much for joining us. I think a very important UK column news today. Um, a lot of information, a lot of very serious information, which uh, we would love help um, for people to spread that and share it and alert people to the, the real and many dangers that are approaching us under this uh, terrible smokescreen of, of COVID. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Wednesday. Bye-bye.